0: Hi, and welcome to episode 42 of Walk to Work. 42, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Um, And today I want to talk about a book that is... Definitely the answer to some sets of life, the universe and everything, it's called Black and White Styles in Conflict. Uh, It was recommended to me and to the internet in general uh, by Gray Ruffin, who writes the blog uh, Obsidian Tea, uh, which is, um, I guess, uh, about explaining black culture um, majoritarily to a white blues dancing audience and putting blues dancing in its uh black cultural conflict context Uh, and black and white styles in conflict uh gray describes uh um i didn't go back to read how Gray describes it uh, but generally uh, viewed it as something really positive uh, i think because it formalized and verbalized uh, things that uh, he knew from having been exposed uh, to Um, both uh, black and white culture growing up and two differences between the two that he knew that he was um, actively code switching when moving uh, from one uh, community to another Uh, so code switching uh, choosing different language patterns choosing different behavior patterns um, and uh, I think he, he'd realized that that was something that he was doing and that probably that um, all black people, especially in the States, notice that that's something that they do, but not necessarily realize the extent of it um, and the reasons, the cultural reasons for it. Uh, so that, as I remember, was the, the reason that Gray found this really powerful. And the other... Uh, thing is that it's powerful to interesting book to recommend because Thomas Kochman, the author uh, is white and he uh, has spent a lot of time in black culture a lot of his um, of what he reports uh, is findings from teaching uh, in uh, mixed classrooms and seeing how black and white students uh, interact and uh, ascribe meaning to what uh, to each other's behaviors <coughs> <coughs> and so it's also valuable, um, although there's limitations very definitely to a white person describing black culture, um, there's also the, especially the seeing it kind of from an outsider's perspective, um, it makes it also a very, uh, slightly more digestible probably uh, for a white person to, uh, such as myself, to, to read it. So anyway, yeah, this is a first part of... Uh, what will be a series uh, of episodes uh, over the spring and into the summer probably uh, on this topic Um, just because uh, I'll uh, get so far uh, and then uh, time will be up and then I'll get so far again and then I'll just have exhausted uh, the notes I've written up so far Uh, I've covered almost two chapters of eight And so these first two chapters, uh, or three actually, because there's an introduction, uh, there's an introduction, there's um, an overview uh, of black culture, and this was a book that was written in the 80s, so um, it's more kind of an overview of the fact that black culture actually exists and is a thing. Uh, And then it dives straight into classroom uh, interactions and modalities of participation, and... Uh, kind of gets to the core of its argument that um, black and white people participate in discussion differently and the reason for that uh, is not uh, that they have different viewpoints so much as they have different viewpoints about what a good discussion looks like. Uh, And because of this, uh, white people tend to find that black people are very confrontational, very passionate, very hot, very argumentative. Uh, And they're like, this is not how we conduct reasoned debates, you guys. Uh, We can't do this. And uh, black people see white people as being uh, cold and insincere um, and basically devious. Uh, And neither of these things is how the, uh, in both cases, uh, people perceive themselves as engaging uh, with as best faith possible effort uh, in debate. Uh, And so this chapter goes into what those differences are. And so that's those that I've uh, started summarizing so far from my rereading of the book. And so that's what I'll start off with today. and so kind of from a personal perspective, I remember um my dad was born in the nineteen twenties. Uh, and I know it's a terrible defence, but he very much was a product of his time. Uh he wants... uh uh Yeah, no, I'm not going to say the things the the, the, the non racist things that my dad did. Um and I probably also will not mention the racist things uh that my uh, dad did or said. Um He definitely believed that racism uh should not be a thing, uh, but he also uh, like most white people, and especially white people who hadn 't had the opportunity to think about this uh, very critically, uh, had a bunch of uh, behaviors and um, uh, words uh, that, that, that 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 embedded uh, racist ideas behind them um And so I'm sure that I have mine and that I will be a product uh, of my time with this anyways. Uh, But my point was, um, when I was very little, I remember watching football and he was very put off by the way that especially black players would celebrate uh, scoring a goal. He's like, the whole point of football is to score goals. don't know why they have to make such a song and dance about it. Uh, that wasn 't that 's not my dad 's voice actually, but anyway, that was kind of his uh, uh, get off my lawn moment on that uh, and I kind of tried to respond in a kind of it 's an exciting thing, uh, like you earn lots of money if you 're an international football player and you score a goal um, like this is a World cup, you get car bonus for every time you score a goal or something ridiculous like that. Um, Uh, And what I I hadn't realized is that this is very much uh, an extension of how you play sports in Afro-descendant culture in general. Um, It's that this whole stip off a lip, uh, pat uh, pat each other on the back and say, oh, jolly good show, uh, is very restrained and just weird to uh, black people. Because it's like, this is a huge event, let's celebrate, let's... Not only the way to win at football is not just to score more goals, but it's also to score more goals with more style. And it's interesting because uh, my dad really appreciated this one player—I can't remember his name—going back, ooh, 20, 30, 40 years from now, uh, who used to, who was so good, he would uh, kind of dribble past his opponents. And instead of going in straight to score, he would kind of turn back and then dribble past them again just to show that he could. Um, and I think there would be a, a kind of shared uh, cross-cultural appreciation there uh, if people understood each other. Uh, anyway, and, and I realize that I very much have this. Like I see exuberance in sports and I'm like, that's not how it's done. Uh, and of course it's how it's done. Uh, and who am I to judge how other people are exuberant at their sport? Um, And so there's a kind of, I feel like I should be non-judgmental, but it's also a part of instead of not being judgmental, it's seeing how this represents a way to uh, perform sports uh, and enjoying it for what it is, uh, rather than pretending, oh, I don't judge, saying, actually, yeah, I do judge, that's great, because that's how this culture does this thing. Anyway, that's what this book is kind of pushing me towards. Uh, So, Thomas Kaufman starts off by describing how he, in the 60s, he was a uh, linguistics professor. Uh, He's teaching (coughs) about African American Vernacular English, and this was back before most people recognised that uh, African American Vernacular English was a thing. And as it becomes more and more recognised as a thing, uh, and as his department is joined by more and more black teachers, when he realises that he needs to step down, uh, from that job because there are other people much better qualified than him uh, to be teaching uh, how black English works uh, and especially those people who are black and he wants to step down and, and center black teachers um, but within his department he's quite well regarded even by the black teachers and by the black students and he explains that the reason that he thinks that that is is that he is um, He understands that knowledge uh, can't be presented in a vacuum. Knowledge is always presented uh, within an agenda. And the person who is presenting that knowledge has to be accountable to that knowledge and to that agenda. And what his work leads him to do is in the classroom, he realizes that black and white students, uh, communication difficulties between black and white people uh, in general, uh, they were presumed to be kind of linguistic difficulties, and he describes how, oh, they're actually more than just linguistic, they're fully cultural. Um, and they, they're, he realized that there' are systematic issues um, that, that, that present systematically, uh, which is, I guess, the definition of a systematic issue, uh, in uh, problems of interpretation. The way that black people interpret white behavior and the way that white people interpret black behavior. Uh, I would assume nowadays that black people are much better at interpreting white behaviour, um, although I don't know, and I would assume that white people are not much better at interpreting black behaviour. Uh, again, that's kind of an assumption on my part, and maybe it's based on my biases, assuming that everyone understands everything I do uh, and very clearly knowing that I don't understand everything black people do. Um, And so he describes uh, how he started teaching this class about uh, black and white culture (coughs) and how the class uh, kind of um, became a class about itself. And that as he had more and more uh, interactions between black and white students, he was able to teach them uh, more and more about their interactions and about what they meant and why. Uh, And so he describes this as an ethnography, he describes this... um, that patterns of language and culture are best understood in context. So he also goes um, into black communities. Um, so, as to be, so he's from white culture. He goes into black communities uh, as a as a full participant. Um, and descriptions of meaning should be uh, ascribed. Um, by participants themselves, so he asks uh, black people what meaning they give to the things that they do. Uh, And so that's kind of describing his approach to ethnography, but also the approach to ethnography uh, that was prevalent at the time, that I believe even uh, uh, continues to be prevalent today. It's a bit windy. Uh, The next chapter goes on to uh, describe black culture. And he starts off with uh, what what is the reason for misunderstanding between black and white people? Uh, He gets to uh, there's assuming that the meaning assigned to style is the same. uh, And it's not. And these stylistic elements of how you discuss of how you play sports um, are different. Uh, And there's an assumption that things are being done from this white middle-class framework, particularly by white people, but also by black people uh, who think that they have possibly um, mastered the code switching uh, in ways that they haven't fully. Again, this is back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Maybe it's different now. Uh, I get the feeling that black people are very capable uh, at uh, code switching into white culture. I've already said that. Anyway, uh, and he says that this this is difficult because white people, at least then, but even still now, had been reluctant to consider that black culture even existed. Um, they would claim, oh, the culture has been destroyed by slavery. They would claim, look at everything that white, black people do. The only things that they do are um, distortions of things that white people do so their English is broken white English it's not it's fully formed uh, fully coherent not at all broken black English Uh, and for the same for their behavior so um, black people tend to be uh, to laugh loudly in public because why wouldn't you Uh, life is to be enjoyed uh, and white people tend to say, oh, look at those black people laughing loudly in public. And it's like, well, do they think they own these public places? Uh, and that's a whole different issue, um, or a slightly different one. But again, it's like, oh, uh, we've tried to teach um, how to be well-behaved to black people, but they just won't learn. Um, and so some people have described dis- tra- this to differences in class. Uh, but the author here claims that's just not enough to explain. So it's true that ethnic culture tends to be more visible in poorer classes, Uh, maybe because they're first-generation immigrant, maybe because they less have to fit in to a middle-class culture because they're not uh, in middle class, they're not not candidates for that. Um, And so you see it, especially back then, you had uh, black basketball players and they would score points with style. And white people are like, completely not understanding this because there are no extra points for style uh you score two points you score three points uh it doesn't matter if your style of point scoring is more impressive you get the same points why would you do that um and here's the the class explanation. It's kind of oh well, they're in poverty and they want to emerge from poverty, so they want to be noticed. Uh, they want to have means of expression. And here the author says, but that's just not enough to to explain the consistency of this uh, or the reasoning behind this. And it doesn't actually uh, square with uh, the actual reasons that people have. And he uh, says that instead we should view this as being related to sense of aesthetics uh, in black culture, black American culture, and see how this is traceable back to uh, black African culture. And he goes on to describe more how this failure to describe, uh, to recognize black culture is a big issue. So, for example, in psychological tests, uh, black masculinity is seen as more feminine. So you'll score higher on feminine traits if you're a black man black femininity is seen as more white-masculine, so you'll score higher on masculine traits if you're a black woman, uh, and this just makes no sense because from a black perspective, for example, being a man and enjoying singing is not at all a feminine trait. It's a, it's a universal trait, um, uh, whereas in white culture, uh, at least at the time, uh, women were more likely to enjoy singing. And I'm pretty sure I walked past a communal choir yesterday uh, and there were way fewer men than there were women. Uh, and so he, he goes on quite at length at how uh, this causes problems and not just a sort of, oh, you score poor, you score Strange on this psychological test, but just generally, um, doctors will not know what normal looks like for black people. Psychologists will not know what normal looks like for black people. Uh, and there's a risk of them being treated as abnormal. Uh, or there's a treat- risk uh, for um, people in need of help to be believed to be more normal than they actually are. Uh, so huge issues uh, there. Uh, And back then was kind of the start of it being impolite to uh, discuss differences between uh, uh, majority mainstream group and minority groups. And the reasoning is that often those differences, uh, especially I guess in the late 19th century, well, starting as soon as slavery began, uh, or as soon as racism began, and all the way through, uh, we've tried to say, oh yes, well the reason uh, for something something is that black people are just not as intelligent as white people. Uh, And that's uh, clearly bullshit. Uh, But it takes a lot of work to prove that that's bullshit because. Uh, well, I'm not quite sure why, but it uh, definitely takes a lot of work and a lot of people believed for a very long time that it was true. And so basically you would take any differences between uh, any minority culture and mainstream white culture and you would say here this is proof that this minority culture is lesser, is inferior compared to white culture and therefore we have a good reason to do whatever. Uh, and so we got into what we've been doing for at least 20, 30 or 40 years now, uh, which is kind of considering it, white people considering it impolite to discuss these differences. Uh, And there's kind of an awkward thing there because it means that the distinctive features of minority groups are often seen as a source of embarrassment by the groups themselves. So black Americans will probably have a tendency to talk less uh, with African American vernacular English than when they're talking with um, white Americans. Uh, partly it's to fit in uh, and partly it's a slight form of embarrassment and then depending on how um, kind of self-attuned you are to not needing to be embarrassed and feeling like you fit in and feeling like you are accepted maybe people switch more Uh, I don't know Um, and the thing is if uh, we if the the differences exist and we want to be able to and our point is they very visibly exist and so pretending we don't see them doesn't make sense and if we truly believe that these differences don't make the other group inferior well we need to be able to discuss those differences and that's also kind of the the reluctance to engage in that discussion is why uh, black culture was kind of not uh, seen Uh, and uh, so again, early 80s, African American vernacular English is increasingly understood to exist. Uh, teachers in classrooms are encouraged uh, to uh, celebrate uh, students' mastery of their native dialect uh, and to teach them uh, the mainstream dialect, uh, uh, but uh, not to belittle them for speaking wrong. Um, but uh, there isn't a, the same understanding for the culture. And so uh, this author, uh, Thomas Kochman is explaining, oh yeah, so we actually need to understand black culture so that we can celebrate black culture uh, and not um, fail to recognize the things that are not um, negative things, but just things that are different because they come from different culture. And so this, uh, his work, he describes how this book seeks to explain uh, the differences Uh, to explain the acculturation process, to explain how uh, black people in contact with white people and white people in contact with black people are able to learn about the other person's culture and how far that goes before it hits kind of a stumbling block. Um, And also to understand uh, better, uh, especially... uh, uh, black people, for example, is portrayed on television, even middle-class black people, uh, they either have to, uh, they're either portrayed as um, uh, poor uh, black, working-class black, or they're portrayed as being fully acculturated white. And I think that's uh, brilliantly uh, played on in uh, the show Blackish, um, where you have to know, I think, that it's self-parody. And it's a little bit awkward that it's self-parody, because I'm not entirely sure to what extent it's self-parody by black people versus by white writers. I don't know whether it's white showrunners or white showrunners. I'm blackish. Um, and so uh, this chapter closes off with saying that uh, all the cultural features described in this book, uh, he has confidence of them. Uh, because they co- it, this confidence comes from the authority of the sources from which the information is obtained, uh, i.e. black people uh, describing uh, their culture and being presented with explanations of their culture and saying, yes, that's exactly how it works, or no, that's not at all how it works. Um, and uh, he makes this uh, the strong claim, and I think this is an important claim, um, Well, uh, that uh, black culture comes from Africa and that there's something really incredibly resilient of it having lasted through uh, many hundred years uh, of slavery uh, and oppression and to still be noticeable and the reason that it's still noticeable is that many of the features of black American culture uh, can also be found uh, in black Caribbean culture or black English culture and also in current black culture in Africa. Uh, and there's also some differences. I can't remember if in the book he gets into those differences. I don't want to uh, erase uh, those differences because I know that lots of people uh, find them really important. I believe uh, matriarchy uh, is a thing that's uh, more solidly black American. I wonder if it's uh, all um slave descendant uh America black Americans so um uh uh black Caribbean as well uh can't remember anyway uh that's for that chapter. I think that's as far as I'm getting today um, it was a bit dry, and I guess the summary is just. Uh, this book is by a white person who has been studying black people uh, in uh, their own culture and um, outs, uh, and in watching uh, black and white students interacting in classrooms and interacting with them and figuring out how there's this misunderstanding in debating between the two and how this comes from uh, black uh, cultural elements. Uh, I mean, also on white cultural elements and the differences between the two. Uh, and promises that the book will explain uh, what these black cultural elements are. And so next time, next episode, we'll be able to dive into um, the classroom and how the arguments work there and why they have these different uh, understandings. Hope this wasn't too long and dry for you. Uh, we'll see you next time. Until then, take care.